I'm sure you've heard the phrase, you can't change other people, you can only change yourself. Well, it's not true. And in fact, if you're a leader or a manager, it's your obligation to change other people, to help them become better at what they do. And if you just care about the people in your life, then it's your longing to help them change in ways that support their own growth and development and become the best people that they can be. So in my new book, which is now available for pre-order, I wrote it with my friend Howie Jacobson. It's called You Can Change Other People, The Four Steps to Help Your Colleagues, Employees, Even Family Up Their Game. We talk about ways of becoming an ally instead of a critic and to help people make the kinds of changes in their lives that make their lives better. You can get it wherever books are sold. To find out more, go to bregmanpartners.com forward slash new book one word. So that's bregmanpartners.com forward slash N-E-W-B-O-O-K. I hope you get the book and I hope it helps you to have more effective conversations with the people in your life. Hello and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. With us today is David Meltzer. David is a friend. He's the co-founder of Sports One Marketing. He was the CEO of the uh, sports and entertainment agency, Lee Steinberg uh, Sports and Entertainment, he, uh, which was the, the, the model, as I understand it, for Jerry Maguire. Uh, so um, show me the money. And David, super interesting guy. He's been recognized by Variety Magazine as their sports humanitarian of the year. Uh, he was awarded the Ellis Island Medal of Honor. Uh, he has a television series that I've that I've seen and interviews that he does with uh, with sports figures, and you know an overall really interesting guy whose mission is to uh, empower over a billion people to be happy. So you know you, you sort of can't go wrong with that. And we're gonna listen to his story and hear a little bit about who David Meltzer is and how he got to where he's gotten. And, and what he has to teach us. David, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much uh, for having me. And obviously with the mission of empowering over a billion people, leadership is a great uh, objective of mine to help inspire, empower others, to empower others, how to be happy, to make money, help people and have fun. That's awesome. Okay, so we're gonna get there. What I'm curious, in order to get there, I wanna sort of start from the beginning. And I wanna give you a little space to, to tell us like, what your journey was, and you know, we don't have to spend 45 minutes on it, but you know, but but what your journey was that got you uh to to where you are now up to this place where here's what you're trying to give back. I love it. Well, my journey was one of three worlds. The first world was the one I was born into, the world of not enough. I was one of six children, five boys and a girl. My mom, a single mom who worked two jobs, packed my dinner in a paper bag just so we could eat and filled up turnstiles at convenience stores with greeting cards. Uh, so uh, we lived in this scarce world at, of being a victim. Uh, everything happened to us. Why can't we have this? Why can't we do this? Uh, although we were extremely happy, uh, my mom was an extraordinary mom. In fact, all my siblings ended up at Ivy League schools like Harvard, P Columbia, Penn, 
summa cum laude extreme students it's probably because she believed the fetus wasn't fully developed till after graduate school and had a motto of doctor lawyer or failure uh but in that realm of not enough the only time i wasn't happy uh was when i caught my mom crying over financial stress so in my mind the world of not enough included my relationship with money which was money would complete the set of happiness that money bought happiness and love since that's the only thing that i was missing that must be why and how i could solve this problem for my mom the only stress or unhappiness that she had this extraordinary woman david learn to ask a question um your dad was he in the picture or was not in the so picture? my dad left when i was five uh, he was a Disneyland dad, a deadbeat dad in the 70s. Uh, I didn't know it. In fact, one of the guilty uh, things I need to process in therapy is that I used to drive around in that station wagon while my dad was with his wife, who was you know closer to my age than him and his convertible Cadillac and wealth. I would ask my mom, as we're starving, why can't you be more like dad? Uh, and so my relationship was strained at 10 when he forgot my birthday and told me, although I knew better that he didn't believe in birthdays, uh, my dad was uh, my hero at five and a zero by 10. Uh, no, and as no. I ventured with a chip on my shoulder to prove that I was better than my father or prove to my father that I was better than him, uh, I uh, instituted a philosophy of enjoying the consistent, persistent pursuit of my potential. I didn't listen to my mom. I didn't listen to my dad. Uh, they wanted me to go to law school or med school. I was going to be a professional athlete. And so I carried a football around with me since the time I was five, telling everyone, you'll see someday. You can laugh at me, scoff at me, make fun of me. Eventually, you'll applaud me. And uh, to this day, the closest I ever came to reaching my potential was I played college football. I ended up getting a scholarship to college, playing football in college. Now, my potential was an average division three college football player. And I learned my very first play in football that uh, as I got ran over by Christian Okoye uh, in lying on my back saying to myself, doctor, lawyer, failure, I realized <laughs> that I uh, had set my aspirations past a potential that I probably could reach in this lifetime. So I then reverted to using what I learned to be a great football player in my own potential to things that I may have a greater potential to. So I wanted to be a doctor, quickly learned that doctors had to be in hospitals. My brother taught me to be more interested than interesting. So I went on a quest to be a lawyer. I studied very hard, graduated law school, and I went to a law school very intentionally to be rich. I went to Tulane University because they had the most oil and gas litigators, which made the most money out of law school. But I also, because I lived in this world of not enough and because I was driven to make a lot of money, uh, to be happy, I ended up always keeping my options open. And I ended up getting a sales opportunity out of law school to sell uh, internet, to sell legal research online, 1992. I went to my mom, asked her, should I be an oil and gas litigator, make 150 grand a year, or should I sell the internet at a $250,000 a year comp plan? She told me internet was a fad, I'd be making the biggest mistake of my life, and I'd better be a real lawyer. Lesson number two, just because someone loves you doesn't mean they give you good advice, obviously. Right. In fact, there's hey. a lot of ignorant, arrogant parents out there that think because they love you so much that they know what's best for you. And they end up creating limitations, resistance, fears, and all types of other things when they're really there with the intention of inspiring us. I ended up being 
in entering and a let me let me pause you for one second david I'm, I'm kind of curious like you you moved over a point very quickly that i'm curious about which is you know since five years old you had a football in your hand and you're like you know you're going to applaud me and you're going to remember and then you go to your first college football game and you get run over and you're lying on your back and you're like oh i guess that's not going to work and and that's well, you know like so for like you know, I basically this, came up with a plan B. I, I I basically at that point decided it wasn't a sure thing. So I bet I had no plan B going into college. Just put it yeah, that way. So I imagine that. So I'm but I'm curious because that's a moment that that you know people face all the time, right? Which is, you know, I'm totally focused, I'm gonna do something, I know I'm gonna, et cetera. And then and then boom, either proverbially or actually get run over and and lying on their back. And saying, okay, I better come up with a plan B. But I imagine that there's an emotional transition in that, that it's not just like, okay, boom, that didn't work. Now I'm gonna go be a really high-priced lawyer. That there's some like, and I'm curious about that moment because that moment you could either give up on life or you could pursue something. And yeah. and you obviously pursued something. So I'd love to hear a little bit about what went on for you around that. Well, what it what it was was mitigation of risk. Um, I was all in, I could get good grades easy. You know, I always have a, I even tell my own kids this cause my siblings never got a B I got one B and I always said it takes half as much work, uh, to get all, all A's and a B than it does to get all A's. So I never really put as a priority my education because first of all, quantumly or naturally, or my potential was so high academically that I could get by when I got ran over. It was the first time that it became a possibility that I wasn't going to make the NFL. Now, I still did everything I could for the next four years. I ended up being a team captain. I ended up, you know, trying to make the NFL. It wasn't and didn't happen. But I think until I got ran over and saw the speed of the game and like what what an NFL player, because Christian Okoye was a senior. I was a freshman. There was no doubt he was going to be drafted in the NFL right. and the difference of talent, it'd be like playing golf with Tiger Woods, thinking you were good at golf and then realizing, you know what, I better have an alternative. So pain to me uh, or setbacks, failures and mistakes are turn signals. Uh, they're propulsion devices, not punishment. Uh, so many people, as you indicate, they take these uh, moments in their lives and they think, stop, not me. I think propulsion, turn, I got a better place, a better situation, or to make my situation better, I'm gonna do these things. So everything is always accelerating forward and pain is not a stop sign for me. It was simply an indicator that I had a lesson to learn, a better place to be, and to keep my options open. So it's a very good point. And was it that smooth a transition for you or did you go through some period of distress or did disappoint, or was it really like, uh, all right, I'm switching? No, no, it was, I'm adding to, I wasn't switching at all. Uh, but I will tell you through the, my entire college career it was painful to, as you keep playing to realize how many people were better than you. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was a valuable lesson uh, because yeah. even today uh, I play a different game because I learned to play my own game uh, and always knowing that I'm really good at some things and better than a lot of people at some things, but there's always someone better. And I wanna make sure that I'm maximizing my potential for yeah. the values I have. 
I, I think that's profound. And, and I, um, I've always felt that about myself and I've, I've felt that about entrepreneurs in general, that, that like, I, I'm an entrepreneur in part because, you know, I have ideas that I really want to see out there and I want to see them kind of my way a little bit, but also because honestly, between you and me, like, I think if I'm like competing with a bunch of people for the same job, I'm not going to get it. So I don't want to compete in that way. Like, I don't want to be one of a thousand people all competing for something. I want to figure out how to do something kind of that particularly leverages my skills and my talents and that I can be successful in my own way. And it looks like you've you you sort of had a similar moment in that way where you say, okay, I'm going to do something that really fits who I am instead of competing against these people who could walk all over me. Yeah. And I think there's another nuance that I always had. I, I pole vaulted as well in college and pole vaulting was very now, pole vaulting and the body type of a pole vaulter and the body type of a football player. It seems like that would be a great distance apart. Yeah. Well, you know, I was too small to play football, but a better body body type. I wish I was taller to be a pole vaulter just because of the physics of it. But yeah. what was interesting about that is the nuance uh, that you are talking about is that you know, it doesn't mean just because you you don't want to compete for a certain job be, because of that, that you may not enjoy doing that activity. Right, so right. I, I was a very, very good pole vaulter. And so mm -hmm. 15 feet, nine inches uh, is enough where I would beat a lot of people. Right. But there was also people doing 17 feet, six inches. And right. when it's that quantifiable, you know, can you still enjoy your personal best? Right. It, yeah, it was a great, so it was a great lesson over four years to compete. Like in, in football, you, you talk about competing with yourself and being the best you can be, but there's so many players and teams and politics and bureaucracy and, positions and, and like, yeah, yeah. yeah and it's yeah. like, you know, I should be playing. I shouldn't be playing. I give me the ball, all the things that I could have done. What I loved about football, football, I, I pole vaulting is they handed me a pole and they said, do your best and let's see where it falls. And right. there's no doubt who's better than you. And there's right. no doubt who's worse than you on that day. Right. No right. Doubt. You know, and I love that. And I so try to use that in my life. That's so interesting. And, 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 and still, when I think about pole vaulting, I think unless you are the best in the world at it, then you better enjoy it because you're not going to get the prominence from it. Like there's only one or two people who are going to get in the world who are going to get the prominence from that. It's even right. worse, I think, with pole vaulting. I sit on the Olympic Committee and, uh, you know, in a lot of Olympians feel this way. It's even worse. You can be the world's best and nobody will even care. And no one <laughs> That's true. That's true. I can't name a single pole vaulter. Right. That's Sergey Vukas cleared 20 feet and he's the world record holder from Russia. And I know that because I enjoy pole vaulting, right. which also leads us to the spectrumization of, of data and media today, that we have these micro communities that can separate us in our own realities uh, and also we see this in politics finance and other places right uh, if but, the if the group is small enough and there's enough small groups and you have enough of a following you could be the best in that particular niche right it's like exactly. I, i'm coming out i just looked at i just looked at uh, amazon before we called because i'm coming out with a new book in in yep. in september and and i saw that i'm the number one, like the book's not out yet but i'm the number one new release in business management but I, I don't know, like there's probably seven categories of business management of which I am number one in one of them. But I, I don't know, like 
but it's but it's like it it puts you you know like if you break up the almost everyone's a number one bestseller at amazon it's something because you're able to break up the niches yeah that's yeah, right if they have the right if they have the right marketing person you should be a number one new release and a number one bestseller uh, <laughs> for one time or another in something um, yeah. which is really interesting because i think it also stems to the you know with social media that all you need is a thousand ambassadors and you'll never have to work again and so many people want nine million followers and i teach and empower people to be leaders within right. the context of social media a, a leader has ambassadors a leader doesn't have followers in fact the leader is an intelligent follower uh, which creates ambassadors and ambassadors are someone who will empower others to empower others uh, to do the things and inspire and empower them to do the things that you're teaching them or empowering them with, which is the whole method of how I'm going to empower over a billion people a create a collective people. consciousness. Yeah, that's amazing. That well, I want to slow down here a little bit because it's a really, it's a very profound thought that you're sharing, right? Which is, you know, to to have ambassadors means you have people who are connected to you who are going to be sharing and teaching what you are sharing and teaching. And adding and, to it and appreciating and adding to their own self to it, right? Their own That's self. Beautiful, but right. Yeah. And if you're able to convince a thousand people who are able to then talk to a thousand people who are able to then talk to a thousand people, you've hit a billion. Correct. That, that's that's how I convince myself to have the courage. And now I'm on the other side of it where I'm asking for crumbs again. I'm like, hold on a second. Thank God, goodness, I say over a billion because it was just, you know, a few years ago that I thought people would think I was crazy. And when I started doing the math and then I started creating ambassadorship and starting to share my content all over all the different mediums, it became more than a reality to me. And now I'm on the other side of it going, hey, don't think too small, keep on expanding, growing and accelerating. Right. You know, maybe we'll just start saying over 2 billion. Right. <laughs> okay, so you, you go to law school, you work really hard and then what? I ended up taking the job in the internet, nine months out of uh, that job, I was a millionaire, entering the world from not enough to the world that I started to call just enough. I bought my mom a house in a car. I paid off my law loans. I became a multimillionaire in 1995. The company sold for $3.4 billion to Thomson Reuters. I then re-engineered my career up to the Silicon Valley, learned a, a critical skill set of raising money, uh, which has always been a, a great superpower of mine. If I was gonna learn to sell, that was one thing. But to raise money was a completely different sale that was always going to be depression, recession, and good times proof. I mean, the, the superpower of what I do, I'm probably one of the world's best money raisers. And that also is a superpower for charity, as well for entrepreneurship, as well for, you know, big, big opportunities. Uh, when you have that superpower, and I learned that at a young age, I ended up being CEO of Samsung's uh, first convergence device their first smartphone in 1999 so at 30 i had everything i ever dreamed of and more i married my dream girl from the fourth grade i had homes golf course ski mountain planes cars anything i wanted i could afford but i was buying things i didn't need to impress people i didn't like and for the very first time in my life if you would have asked me for the truth when you say, hey, how are you today, Dave? And I always tell people amazing. I, I, in my heart at 30, when I said amazing, I would have said, I'm so unhappy, I want to kill myself. Wow. <laughs>
and 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 you laugh when you say that, but that's how you felt. And and at that point, what you were doing were you was is that you were pursuing as much money as you can get because that to you was the missing component of happiness. That you know there, there was like if you made money, irony. then then you can be happy. And and the money didn't make you happy. I don't want to stay here too long because it's something that we hear a lot, right? That money doesn't make you happy. But it is interesting because when you don't have money, it sure does seem like money will make you happy. And when you have enough money, then it becomes clear that, you know, money is not the distinguishing factor. Money is not the missing ingredient. It is though. See, that, that's where I learned. These are the lessons that I learned as I ventured from the world of just enough buying things I don't need for people, uh, you know, that I don't like. Uh, what happened was I started to realize that money is extremely important. Money, it, it, it's what you shop for with the money. See, we live in the pragmatic world of the currency, the object of energy that you put into the flow to get stuff at the speed of light here, the time of money. Money's important. There's two components that I learned through this process of why money makes you happy. One, when you shop for the right things for the right reasons. So I went through this transition of I own Ferraris and Porsches and all these things and they didn't make me happy. Yeah, because I was shopping for the wrong things with no with the wrong reason. See, and so I used to tell people don't buy a Ferrari. You know, it's it's, you know, not going to make you happy. That's not true. Right. If you buy a Ferrari for the right reason. I promise you, it'll make you purposeful, passionate, and profitable. It will make you happy. And What's so, the right what I, reason to buy a Ferrari? Uh, for example, if you utilize a Ferrari to raise money for charity, if you use a Ferrari as an investment to make money to give to a charity, if you use a Ferrari to inspire at-risk children that you were an at-risk child and that if you work really hard, you can have that Ferrari and then donate it to charity. There's so many different reasons to have a Ferrari that can be utilized to make you happy with passion, purpose, and profitability. And that was a nuance that I learned recently because I used to tell people, you know, don't buy a Ferrari. There's no, and I was inherently saying, I'm not creative enough to come up with a good reason to, to make it something that you should shop for uh, in order, you know, to be happy. These are the things that people don't think about. And that's for me where I shifted from a world of just enough for me, buying things I don't need to make me happy, to impress people I don't like, to a world of abundance of more than enough. And the difference is it takes faith and it takes creativity in order to live in more than enough. You have to have faith that there is more than enough of everything for everyone. And you have to have creativity to appreciate what you have, meaning add value to what you have, and the acknowledgement of being willing with faith to give it away. And that was the crux of this whole journey is this. My mom told me, the more you give, the more you receive. Well, my mom gave everything she ever have and never had anything to give. And so now we all have to support my mom. Mm -hmm. What she didn't tell me was step one. You got to receive in order to give. And the more you receive, the more you can give. What do I mean by that? If I have this much, Peter, and I appreciate it, I add value to it, I appreciate it, gratitude, forgiveness, accountability, it turns into this much. When I give that away, just like my mom taught, I acknowledge what I have. This only way you can acquire the knowledge of what you have is to give it away. But what remains is a bigger void. 
And if I receive now, if I ask for what I want, not listening to what other people want for me, what's missing and what I don't want. When I ask for what I want, I now am able to receive more. And then right. I give that away and then it's more. I appreciate that. It grows more. And this is the flow of the abundant universe that faith allows me to know there's more than enough of everything for everyone. I am happy. I am healthy. I am wealthy. I am worthy. What am I doing to interfere with that? Not I'm going to get happy, healthy, worthy, and wealthy. I have to go do all the, no, you have to focus and use your free will to clear the interference between you and the all powerful almighty source that has everything for everyone. Wow. So, so, so you start from a place whether or not you um, feel like you are in need, you start from a place of saying, in this moment, I have what I need. I have enough. I have more than I need. And I am probably doing some things to block that. And, And what do I have to do to stop blocking? What are the kinds of things that people do to block it? So they don't take five daily practices. And so I live my life in the enjoyment of the consistent, persistent pursuit of my potential by one, taking inventory every day of what I want. What do I want personally? What do I want experientially? What do I want to receive? And most importantly, what do I want to give? And those are two things that are completely uh, reconciled together because Mm -hmm. giving and receiving are one. But taking inventory of that, not being afraid of changing my mind, my mind, not being able or afraid of learning lessons and having mistakes, failures, and setbacks. But if you take inventory of your what, you now have a simple thing to do. Take inventory of your who. Who can I help with my what and who can help me get my what? Then you can go to the how by using a lens of productivity of how much value you're going to provide, a lens of accessibility of how accessible and connected you are to others and how you're accessing what you want. And of course, the lens of gratitude that forces you as a muscle to find the light, the love and the lessons and abundance and everything. If you know your what, your who and your how, you now can know your now, meaning most people don't know what they want so they don't do anything and 100% of the things you do now get done. People don't get things done because they don't know how to prioritize what they want because they don't know what they want, they don't know who can help them and who they can help and they don't know how to get it done. If you know your what, your who and your how, you will know your now, then you're capable of applying your why. Applying your why is acknowledging that you already have your why, you're just clearing the ego-based consciousness that get in the way of the need to be right, offended, separate, inferior, superior, anxious, frustrated, angry, guilty, resentful, all these interferences, these ego-based consciousness, we then can practice applying our why by one, identifying them, two, stopping, not resisting them, going over, under, through, or around them, but stopping when we see those triggers, breathing through our nose, out through our mouth to get to center or neutral, and then rolling in the right trajectory of our what, our who, our how, and our now. When we stop, drop, and roll, the reason we do that is when you're in ego-based consciousness, when you're not when you have that interference, you're not applying your why to your what, your who, and your how. When you're doing that, your mind, your body, and soul are on fire with interference. What you need to do when you're on fire, just like your parents taught you, stop, drop, and roll. Do not resist. Go over, under, through, oversell, back, and sell, lie, manipulate, or cheat your way to it. Simply stop. Be a ferocious Buddha, drop down to center and neutral and roll in the trajectory of what you want, who can help you, who you can help, how you're going to get it done and know what you want to do now. Be present.
did you take a breath in the midst of all of that? Or was that, I mean, cause I, your, your lung capacity is incredible. There's a lot, a lot there. We don't have time to sort of unpack the whole thing, David, but you know, what would be a starting point that you would offer people? Like what's like, you know, let's say people are, are taking this all in, like what's a place that you would suggest someone uh, begin to explore how they might, you know, uncover some of the stuff that's getting in their way. Well, you give meaning to everything you see. So the best way to do so is a simple thing, which is to say thank you before you go to bed and when you wake up. It's a baby step, I believe, and habits are born by lowering the bar. If you simply say thank you before you go to bed and you wake up, if you do it for 30 straight days, your life will change. You then will naturally start thinking about all the things you are grateful for. You'll start naturally thinking about what you want because you're already satisfied and grateful for everything in your life. The nicest thing about it is it will provide you a foundation of gratitude, a foundation right. of forgiveness, a foundation of accountability that allows you to effectively communicate, not just with others, but with the greatest source of light, love, and lessons that exist, the omniscient, all-powerful. Let me leave you, with, leave you with this, Peter. What it allows you to do, and this changed my life. Somebody told me that, David, think about how much you care about your children. Think about how much you love your children. Think about what you will do for your children. That was easy for me to do. And then they say, imagine this. There is an omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful source that feels exactly, if not more, about you. When, when, when you really allow that to sink in, that there is some omniscient, all, so, Unlike me, who can't do everything for my children, I, I don't know every, I'm an ignorant, humble person. I can only know what I know, but I know I don't know the trillions of other data points that I need to know for my children. And they have their own, to imagine there's an omniscient, all-powerful, all-knowing source that feels the same way about me that I feel about my children, forget about it. I am so grateful. I, I literally utilize that to clear any interference when I have the need, which happens every day, when I have the need to be anxious, frustrated, angry, worried. Worrying's wishing for what I don't want. Separate, inferior, superior, resentful, all these different feelings. When, when I have them, I only spend minutes and moments in it because I remind myself, I recollect, I remember what I'm connected to and through, the great abundant source of everything. And they, that source feels the same way about me, if not even more than I feel about my own children. That's the source which allows me to be abundant and to live in the world of more than enough. David, this is great stuff. Where could people find out more about you? What, what would you, uh, you know, where would you send people? Well, first of all, if anyone wants the five daily practices, or they want my ebook, audiobook. I sign my book, send it to you, pay for shipping and the book. So I'm not a big fan of, of selling books on Amazon. I let the rich people that hire me to pay for all the books to give to everyone. So I'm blessed to have that opportunity. Just email me, david at dmeltzer.com, david at dmeltzer.com. If you forget it, just remember my name, David Meltzer. You can Google it, Instagram it, LinkedIn it. You'll find me everywhere, David Meltzer. Thank you so much, Peter. It's been a pleasure and I look forward to promoting your book and interviewing you more and exploring more things about leadership than the three worlds of not enough, just enough, and more than enough.
David, it's such a, a pleasure to, to talk with you and soak in some of your energy. And I always, I mean, I've, I, 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 you know, we have to close out the interview now, but I have more questions, I, which I'm sure will sort of continue to. Continue that, that's to my talk. secret sauce. I normally give people 20 minutes and about six hours of, uh, of content. So it, and it's I, really fun. <laughs> well, thank, thank you. you. Thanks so much, David. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.